Thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Church Online Podcast. This is Pastor Andrew, and whether you're listening in the car or at the gym, or maybe just sitting down with a cup of coffee and an open Bible in front of you, we hope that through this message, God will meet you right where you are and help you grow in your personal relationship with Him. So let's jump right into this week's study of God's Word together. book of Judges, and if you don't know anything about the book of Judges, you're going to learn a lot in the next few minutes. Uh, but in this series, we've just been looking at some real people that are mentioned in the Bible, these judges that God raises up, and learning some lessons uh, from their life, but more importantly, uh, learning how God deals with us uh, as his children. And so we want to continue that series this morning. Um, let me start this way. Uh, there was a book that came out several years ago by author Paul Williams, and the title of the book was simply, If You Could Ask God One Question, What Would It Be? If You Could Ask God One Question, What Would It Be? That was the title of the book, and the author spent a number of years researching the book and just going around to talk to people from different backgrounds, different ages, and different situations, and asking them that question. Okay, if you could ask God one question, and you knew that he would answer it, what would your question be? And the book is based on the 12 most common questions that came up, and, and the author tries his best to, to answer some of those very difficult questions that people have for God. But let me personalize it and ask you, okay? If you could ask God one question right here, right now, and you knew that he would answer, what would your question be? Well, that's... That's a difficult question in and of itself, isn't it? Because I think for many of us, we, we, we have a lot of questions we want to we ask God about. But if you had to narrow it down to just one, what would that question be? Well, the reason I start with that is because the person we're introduced to in the Bible today, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, is a guy named Gideon. And Gideon was a lot of things. We're going to learn about his life over the next couple weeks. He was a lot of things, but one thing for sure... Gideon was inquisitive, and he asked some good questions. And he actually has three questions that he asks of God. And um, we're in Judges chapter 6. If you want to follow along in the scriptures, that's where we're going to start. We can get all the way back to the beginning. Here we go. We're going to look at Gideon's three questions, okay? And um, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting, because I think maybe what you're going to find, what I found in reading this passage is that the three questions Gideon asks are questions in some form or another that I've asked of God over the years. So I think you're going to be able to relate. They're good questions. I think you're going to be able to relate to some of these questions he has. And, and we're going to do our best to try to answer them in the short time that we have together around God's Word this morning. Well, if you're following along in a Bible, uh, we're in the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 6. I've titled the message series, uh, Without a King, because if you've been with us, then you might know that the period of Judges is a 400-year period that takes place after Joshua was the leader of Israel and before the monarchy in Israel when uh, King Saul started the monarchy, but it really flourished under the reign of King David. It's that 400-year period when Israel didn't have really any consistent godly leadership. 
and they got, they got off track in their spiritual life. It was a very difficult four centuries for them. They didn't obey the Lord consistently. They didn't trust the Lord's faithfulness. They ended up being influenced by the world around them. We talked about that in week one. They started worshiping idols and getting involved in all kinds of behaviors and attitudes that were not honoring to the Lord. They were just not on the right path, the path of blessing. And so there's this phrase that comes up seven times in the book of Judges. I mean, it's word for word. The exact phrase shows up seven times in the book. And it's how our chapter, chapter 6, starts this morning. I think this is the fifth time that it shows up in the book. And so let me put it up on the screen for you. It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Seven times. Seven different times it says that. So when the Israelites turned away from the Lord, when they got off the path of God's blessing, it would start this cycle that took place that repeated itself over and over again during this dark 400-year period. And we won't go into a lot of detail today because we talked about it a couple weeks ago. But, um, you know, they, they, would, they would be influenced by the world around them instead of the God above them. And they would start to get involved in idol worship. They would stop living for the Lord and trusting in the Lord. And they'd start looking a lot more like the world than God's people. And as a result of that, God would allow some discipline. And he would use these other wicked nations to oppress them and and enslave them and to discipline them. But then they would start to see the error of their ways and the suffering would become too much. And then they would turn to the Lord and say, we're sorry, we repent, we want to do better, we know we're on the wrong path. And God, who is so benevolent and full of mercy and grace, and you can never out the grace of God. God shows mercy and grace and he, and he sends them a leader, one of these judges, one of these deliverers. And God uses that man or woman, we saw a couple weeks ago, Deborah, God uses that person to deliver Israelites from their enemies, and then they start serving the Lord again. But it's usually very short-lived, they get off track, and it's that cycle just keeps repeating itself over and over again throughout the book of Judges. And the whole book is really about these people, these characters, these, uh, these accounts of these leaders that God raises up. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at Deborah. Today, we're looking at this guy named Gideon. And uh, it's real interesting. They don't all get equal treatment. Some of the judges, I think there are 12 of them mentioned in the book of Judges. Some of these leaders, these judges, and remember, when we're talking about judges, um, it's not the black-robed official that presides over a courtroom and has a gavel. No, they're leaders. They're military deliverers um, that God uses. I think there's 12 of them mentioned in the book, and some of them only get one verse. I mean, like barely even mentioned. But this guy, Gideon, that we're talking about, he gets three chapters. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 are all about Gideon. And so we're going to give him at least two sermons, okay? He's earned that. Three chapters worth of material. We're not going to get through it all today. So we'll talk about Gideon the next couple of weeks. But let's dive in at the beginning, okay? If you've got a Bible, Judges chapter 6. And um, we're going to look at these three good questions that he asks. And we'll start right at the beginning. In verse 1, there it is. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. There's that cycle starting that we just saw. 
Because of the power, uh, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So it's, you can tell this is a dark time for the Israelites, for God's people. They're literally hiding every day that they live just to keep from being destroyed by the Midianites. Verse three says, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Verse 5, they came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. And we can see what the Lord is doing here, right? In fact, verse 1 talks about it, that because Israel, his people, had gotten off track, they, they were no longer living for him, God is allowing these rival nations to come in and conquer them and, and oppress them, not to punish them, but as a means of discipline. Not unlike a loving parent disciplines a disobedient child, that's what God is doing. He's using these other people's these pagan-worshipping nations to come in and defeat and destroy Israel because he wants to get their attention. He's trying to awaken them spiritually so they'll see the error of their ways and turn back to him so that he can bless them. And apparently it works because look at verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So they finally came to that point where they said, okay, enough is enough. Lord, we need you. We can't do this on our own. We're, clearly, we're on the path of destruction. We want to make a course correction and get on the path of blessing. They, they cry out to the Lord for help. And again, because God is so rich in mercy and grace, he hears their cries and he sends them a deliverer, someone to rescue them from the Midianites. And his name is Gideon, and Gideon's account picks up, let's see, in verse 11, okay? Verse 11 says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Just a couple of things before we move on from that verse that are important. Uh, and I think we've probably talked about this maybe before over the years, but it's worth mentioning again here. But anytime you see a reference to the angel of the Lord, okay, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, most Bible scholars believe that's a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, he shows up, I think, about a dozen times in the Old Testament. But of course, you know, Jesus was God. He's part of the Trinity. So he existed before the manger in Bethlehem, right? He, he was alive. He's always been alive. But his ministry in the Old Testament was different. And most, uh, again, Bible scholars believe that when there's this reference to the angel of the Lord, that was Jesus' ministry in the Old Testament before he shows up in the Gospels being born as a baby, you know, in the manger in Bethlehem. And there are a number of good reasons why that's believed to be the case, uh, we'll see in our text this morning that anytime someone interacts with the angel of the Lord, okay, not just an angel, a messenger, but anytime anyone interacts with the angel of the Lord, they refer to him as the Lord or as God. 
And anytime the angel of the Lord speaks, what the Bible records is it says, and the Lord said, and God said. So unlike uh, any other messenger or angel that shows up in the Bible, the angel of the Lord gets that title of, of deity, that this is what the Lord said. Not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. An another reason uh, scholars believe that is because after the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Christ becomes you know, incarnate into a, a human baby. After that, the angel of the Lord disappears from the pages of Scripture, never shows up in the New Testament, because he's just referred to as Jesus, right? the Savior and Lord after that. But, but up until that time, the angel of the Lord, I think mentioned a dozen times in the Old Testament, nowhere to be found in the New Testament. Again, another reason why scholars believe that it's, it's Jesus. So I say all that to say whether or not Gideon realized it or not, this encounter he has is not just with any run-of-the-mill angel. That would be impressive enough. No, this is, this is an encounter he's having with Jesus, the angel of the Lord, God's own son. And so look what it says. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, where it says, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. And that's worth mentioning as well, because we're not from this culture. We may not notice the oddity of what's going on here. Uh, he, he's threshing wheat down in a wine press. Now, it was common practice in that day that if you would have been threshing wheat, you would do it on what is called a threshing floor, which is a, a solid rock floor, preferably on a hill, an elevated surface. And the reason they would thresh wheat on an elevated surface, on a, on a hard elevated surface like on the top of a hill, is because in that part of the world, the prevailing afternoon and evening wind coming off the Mediterranean Sea would blow, and as they're with their threshing uh, tools, they're, they're, they're throwing the, the, the wheat up in the, the air, and those breezes would, would separate the chaff from the wheat. The, the wheat, which is the meatier, heavier part of the grain, would fall to the ground. They'd collect that for food, and that, that wind, that breeze, would, would help blow the chaff away. So it, it was a much more efficient and effective way to thresh wheat in those days, to be on that threshing floor, preferably on a hill where there's a breeze. But that's not where we find Gideon, is it? Gideon is more or less in a hole where they would make wine. He's down there, no breeze down there, okay? He's down there doing it the hard way, man. I mean, he's trying to just eke out enough food to eat for himself or maybe his family. No breeze, having a hard time, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff. And the Bible tells us why he's doing it that way. It was far less efficient, far less effective, but it tells us why he was doing it that way. It says because he was hiding from the Midianites, right? That's what the passage says. He was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. See, he's fearful. He, he doesn't want these Midianite raiders to, to see him up on a hill, come and take his food or perhaps even take his life. And so he's down in this hole afraid of being seen by his enemy. And understanding the situation and Gideon's fear, it kind of makes this next verse sound humorous. So the angel of the Lord shows up, 
and he wants to talk with Gideon. And here's what he says, verse 12. When the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus, appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. What? Mighty warrior? I mean, Gideon had to be like, uh, don't see any mighty warriors around here. I mean, he, he, he's, he's down in this hole. He's hiding, cowardly hiding, just trying to survive. Avoid attack or, or defeat by the enemy. Mighty warrior? Seems kind of a strange way to address a guy who's, who's down in this hole hiding for his life. And so what is that about? I mean, is this, uh, is this the Lord just being sarcastic? Uh, you know, I think maybe there's some, something to that. I, mean, I, I can make, maybe, a, hey, Mr. Courageous down there, uh, hiding from your enemies. Yeah, I'm talking to you. And he just kind of rolls his eyes like mighty warrior. I, there probably is some element to that. We see that show up in other parts of the Bible as well. But there's more to it than just simple sarcasm. There's more to this title that the angel of the Lord gives Gideon, mighty warrior. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But for now, I want you to see Gideon's first question. The Lord shows up and calls him mighty warrior. And he says to him, you know, Gideon, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for your life. And I want you to see how Gideon responds in verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Great question, right? I mean, Jesus says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Well, Gideon's not, uh, he's not so easily convinced, is he? He asked a very honest question of the Lord. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our, that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And we can see Gideon's wheels turning, can't we? He's like, I've heard the stories about the Lord being good. I've heard the stories from my ancestors about the Lord being powerful. But if the Lord is so good and powerful, why is this happening? Why are we defeated by the Midianites? Why am I down here in this hole hiding for my life? It doesn't seem like the Lord is so good or so powerful, or we wouldn't be in this situation. Have you ever found yourself asking God those kinds of questions? You know, when our personal experience doesn't line up with what we've heard about God or, or what we think we know about God, typically when we're going through uh, adversity or difficulty or suffering, we can be tempted to ask the same kinds of questions. Why? Why me? Why now? Why would God allow this? into my life. And I just want you to know, if you're in a season like that right now, asking God those why questions because you're suffering and hurting, 
I want you to know something Gideon learned. God's big enough to handle your questions, all right? You know, insecure people, they get all ruffled when somebody questions them, right? God's got no insecurity issues. He's big enough to handle your questions. He may not give you the answer you want all the time, but he's not threatened by big questions like this. So let's frame Gideon's first question up this way. If God is good... Why are bad things happening to me? That's really what he was asking. And this first question may indeed be the most common question people have for God because uh, suffering and disappointment and adversity, uh, they often evoke these why questions. And it's interesting, the angel of the Lord doesn't answer Gideon's question directly, but you and I know through the vantage point of history why God is allowing this suffering in the life of Gideon and the Israelites. Gideon didn't see it in the moment, and that's the way it usually works. When we're hurting, when we're suffering, we're in the middle of it. We can't really see the purposes behind it or the reasons for it, usually. But looking at it from the vantage point of history, you and I know exactly why the Israelites are suffering. Verse 1 tells us that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites because God was disciplining them for their disobedience. Again, they had gotten off track. They were not living for him. They were worshiping idols. God wanted to bless them. God wanted to get them off the path of destruction and onto the path of blessing. And so like any loving parent, God disciplines them to get their attention. So they'll cry out to him and turn from their destructive, wicked ways. Gideon didn't know that at the time. He didn't see all that. But we see it because the Bible tells us that's why. And sometimes, listen, sometimes that is why. You, me, any child of God, follower of Christ, sometimes that is why we experience suffering and hardship and adversity. It's not that God has abandoned us. We've abandoned him. And again, as any loving parent, he cares too much about us to abandon us. I mean, that's what would have happened. I mean, Gideon thinks God has abandoned them. The Lord has abandoned us, or we wouldn't be suffering like this. No, that wasn't the case. The Israelites had abandoned God. And if God would have abandoned them, he would have just let them go. All right, this is your choice. Go on down the path of ultimate destruction. But God, as a loving father, cared too much for them. So he intervened with discipline. And he can do that in your life, in my life, too. Sometimes that's the reason for for suffering and for for hardship in our lives because we're not walking with the Lord the way we should or we've turned away from him or not taking him seriously. And says, okay, okay, I I want to get you to a point where you see how much you desperately need me, so I'm going to allow some pain. And it's not an act of uh, vengeance. It's an act of love, the way of... A parent disciplines their children. We don't have time to turn there, but uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 talks a lot about God's discipline of his children. And uh, it's really a great passage. You ought to to read it sometime because uh, in Hebrews it says, do not resist the discipline of the Lord because the discipline of the Lord proves that you're his children. I mean, you know, when my kids were little, I didn't discipline other people's kids. I disciplined my kids. The Lord doesn't discipline the enemy's kids. You know, they, they, they have their own issues and judgment. 
But, but Hebrews says, one of the ways you know you're a Christian, you're, you're part of the family, you're a son or a daughter of God, is because when you, when you choose to live disobediently, God intervenes and disciplines you. It goes on to say that as a loving father disciplines his children, God disciplines the child he loves. And that's what Israel was experiencing here. And you and I can experience that too. But that's not always the case when you're suffering or when there's hardship or difficulty or adversity in your life. It's not always the case that God is disciplining you for not being right with him or, or living for him because obedient children of God suffer hardship as well. So sometimes pain is God's discipline, but oftentimes our suffering is merely the result of living in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. You know, God originally created mankind to live in paradise. But we polluted paradise by sinning and choosing to turn away from him. And from that moment in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, for the rest of the Bible, at least until you get to the Revelation anyway, the rest of the time, this world in which we live in is cursed by the evil one. And the Bible tells us that. And, and, and the Bible tells us that God has allowed the devil a certain amount of control over this world. And until God destroys this world and brings a new world, a new heaven and a new earth, there's got to be suffering and hardship as a result because he's allowed the evil one a measure of control. Um, I want you to see what it says about that in 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse 19. It says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You say, wait a minute, I thought God was in control of everything. Well, yeah, he is. He is sovereign over everything. But as a result of sin, he has allowed the evil one some temporary control over the events that take place in this fallen, broken world. And under that kind of leadership, there is pain and suffering and hardship. And sometimes in the midst of that, we can feel like Gideon, like God has abandoned us. He's turned his back on us. He's not with us. But look at the next verse, verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. He is the true God and eternal life. Listen, God has not abandoned you in your hardship and suffering. Not at all. God has sent a deliverer far greater than Gideon to rescue you and to rescue me. His name is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God loved people too much to just let them go on on their path of destruction, living in this fallen, broken, sin-cursed world, only to die eternally. No, God didn't abandon us. God sent a deliverer. You know, that's the picture, really, in Judges. The picture of God sending these judges, these leaders, to deliver the people in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus in the New Testament. God sending his son to rescue you and me from this sin-cursed, broken, painful world of suffering to give us eternal life and return us to paradise in his presence. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Well, he's granted the evil one a measure of control. But Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. 
He's the deliverer. He's the savior. He's the rescuer. Have you leaned into him and trusted him as your savior and Lord? Or are you just hoping things are going to get better in this fallen, broken world? Well, listen, we live this life and we can have a measure of joy and blessing and we see God's goodness in a variety of ways in this world. But we know how things end, right? We, we know the trajectory of things. Uh, the reason God destroys it is because he's going to create something new and better. And he wants to take you to be a part of that. He sent Jesus to rescue you from this world that is collapsing and declining. So many times when we're suffering, it's just the result of this world in which we live. But that's a great question. I mean, Gideon's first question, if God is good, why are bad things happening to me? I mean, that's, a, that's not a question easy to answer. And especially when we're in the middle of it, it can be very painful. But God provides us through Jesus some understanding. Let's look at the second question Gideon has. And the second question is this. Could God really use someone like me? That's a common question people have, right? I mean, I, I want us to come back to this angel of the Lord calling Gideon a mighty warrior because it just doesn't really seem to fit the situation. And Gideon has this question. Maybe you've had this question. Could God really use someone like me? Maybe you've wondered about it. I think all of us who know the Lord would like to think that God could use us somehow as part of his redemptive plan for people. But sometimes we may not be so sure. Gideon wasn't so sure. So when the angel of the Lord finds him down in this hole, this wine press, hiding from the Midianites, you know, he's just trying to eke out a, a, enough food maybe for the day, for his family. We don't know, but he's hiding it really is a picture of defeat and discouragement and someone who's downtrodden and just barely getting by. That's the picture we have of Gideon. And the angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon is like, I'm no mighty warrior. Are you kidding me? I'm living in defeat like all the rest of my people. He wasn't so sure that God could use a person like him. So he has some objections. Look at verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Verse 15. Oh, pardon me. Gideon's so polite, isn't he? He's just such a nice guy. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Gideon's like, I'm no mighty warrior, man. You've got the wrong guy for this job. I'm no deliverer. Gideon is clearly a reluctant leader. And I want you to know, sometimes those are the best leaders, reluctant leaders. Those who have not fought for the position, but who are sought for the position. Gideon is just like, I don't think so. And I'm pretty sure that if the angel of the Lord would have said, okay, fine, I'll get somebody else, Gideon would have been okay with that. He says, I'm the, I'm the weakest person in the weakest family. Why in the world, how in the world could I deliver Israel, my people? And what Gideon was guilty of doing is something that we can all be guilty of to some degree. And that is, we tend to define ourselves by our own perspective 
or, or by the perspective of others, what others might say about us. We look at our lives and we think, okay, this is, this is who I am. This is what, I've, what I'm like. Or we hear other people say things about us or say things to us. and Okay, that defines me. And I'm not saying there's no value in that kind of input and information. Sometimes if you've got you know, some good people in your life, they can help you see things more closer to reality. But by and large, most of us are, are far too guilty of defining ourselves by what we think or what others think instead of what God thinks. And instead of finding our identity in Him and the potential He sees in us, we limit ourselves by what we think of us or what others might think of us. And it really is, a, is an unwinnable battle, this taking our cues and understanding and identity from ourselves or from other people. Because what usually happens is um, if a person is, uh, has some success, you know, they work hard or, or they, they have some success in their life and maybe they're on a good stretch and things are going well, the temptation is, if you're basing your identity on that, is to have an elevated view of yourself and to think more highly of yourself than you should. But then if you hit a bad stretch and things go bad and there's some failures, and, and, and then you're downtrodden and you start to think more lowly of yourself than you should. Or, and the same works with what other, how other people perceive us. Somebody compliments you enough, the temptation is to become arrogant and start thinking, yeah, I got it all together. People say that I do anyway, so I must. I got it all together. I, and we become proud. We can be. Or if people, instead of complimenting us, criticize us, then our self-image takes a nosedive. And woe is me, man. I'm terrible. I can't measure up. And, and it's just this battle, this pendulum that goes back and forth until we learn to find our identity in the Lord and his love for us and his purpose and his plan for us. You can't always trust your opinion of yourself. You cannot always trust the opinion of others that others have of you. You can always trust God's opinion. He's always right. He always speaks the truth. In the case of the Israelites, when they were off track, he didn't come along and say, oh, no problem, you're fine. No, he addressed them. You've done evil in the eyes of the Lord, and you're going to be disciplined for it. So he, he, God will always tell us the truth. He is the one who helps us stay on that right track and a right understanding of who we really are. But Gideon was defining himself by what? By his own limitations by the weakness of his family. And God wants to use Gideon to do something great to deliver Israel, but all Gideon sees are the limitations. Could God really use somebody like me? I'm the weakest person in the weakest family. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the ability. I don't have the position. I don't have the, I don't have the will to do it. And you and I can do the same thing. Perhaps God has an assignment in mind for you. Maybe there is a need in your church or your community that you're aware of. And God's put this need on your heart. And God wants to use you in some way to be a deliverer, to meet the need. And, and, and God has impressed it upon you. But you're like, nah, I don't think I'm the person for the job. I'll pray that God uses somebody else. And that's just not me. I, I don't have the resources. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the... Whatever. I've got all these limitations that, that are going to hold. There's just no way. That's what Gideon was doing. 
he has all these reasons as to why he's not the man, and he brings them up, and, and you know, they very well may be true. Maybe he was the weakest person in the weakest family. But notice, the Lord doesn't even acknowledge those things. <laughs> he, it's, like, it's like he just blows right through that, and he's what he says in verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. See, the Lord being with you is the great equalizer. To every challenge, every adversity, every struggle, when the Lord is with you, you are an overcomer. It doesn't matter what family you're from. It doesn't matter your, your limited gifts or abilities. Listen, when the Lord is with you, it's not you. It's not about you. It's about him and his power and his might and him showing himself strong through you. Can God use a person like you? Absolutely. Can God use a person like me? Absolutely. Not because we're so great, but because he's so great. And don't you love, don't you love what he says in verse 14? Um, the Lord says to Gideon, verse 14, go in the strength that you have. Now, that wasn't very much strength. He's down, in, he's down in the hole, hiding from the Midianites. He doesn't have a whole lot of faith down there, you know. He's just trying to make it through the day. But the Lord says, go in the strength that you have. Just take a, a little baby step of faith. Lean into my purpose and my plan. Trust me just a little bit. Because that's how faith works, by the way. Faith is progressive. And Gideon eventually takes this little baby step of faith and trusts the Lord, and that little faith becomes a stronger faith. And that stronger faith becomes a mighty faith, actually. I, mean, I don't know if you know this, Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament, enlisting uh, all the heroes of the faith, Gideon gets honorable mention. Hebrews 11. How in the world? This guy hiding cowardly from the Midianites. Well, because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And he made himself available to the Lord. Even though he had some reservations, he went in the faith that he had. And God, as he does, because faith is progressive, it builds upon itself, gave him more faith, more faith, led to a mighty faith. And we'll just take a quick peek into chapter 7. But Gideon actually does become the mighty warrior the Lord had in mind. Did you know that? And not, not because he, he was anything that special. He was an ordinary guy. But because the Lord was with him, Gideon is transformed from being a cowardly hider to being a confident leader of men. If you look into chapter 7, um, the Lord leads Gideon to put together an army. We'll talk about that more a little bit next week, but he, he puts together an army, and they're going to attack the Midianites, and I want you to see what Gideon says to this army that he's leading before the attack takes place. Verse 17, here's what Gideon says, watch me, he told them, follow my lead, when I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow your, yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Wow! Dude is becoming a mighty warrior, right? 
He said, hey, you guys, follow me. Do what I do. Follow my example. He's got so much confidence that he's been transformed from that wine press where he was so fearful and defeated to this confident leader. But not before he had that question, could God really use somebody like me? Yes, yes, God can. Could God really use somebody like you? Yes, like me, absolutely. Regardless of the flaws or the limitations or the past or the struggles, God makes a habit of using ordinary broken people to do extraordinary redemptive things. He did with Gideon, and he can with you and with me. So that's question two. If, first question, if God is good, why are bad things happening to me? Secondly, could God really use someone like me? Thirdly, another big question, how can I know God's will? How can I know God's will? You ever had that question? Maybe you're facing some decisions right now. How can I know? what God's will is. And I learned this uh, during the first service, but judging by the time, I believe it's God's will that we talk about that next Sunday. Okay? So we'll just pick up right there next Sunday because we don't want to rush through discerning God's will. Gideon actually does some things that are not a great example for us, and we'll unpack that next week. He ends up eventually discerning God's will, but... Uh, Let's not rush through it and just talk about how we can do that uh, when it comes to living out our faith next.